Hello, everyone. My name is Reese Lindmark, and you're listening to Gray Mirror, a podcast from MIT Media Lab's Digital Currency Initiative on technology, society, and ethics. And unlike something like Black Mirror, which just looks at the negative impacts of technology on society, we are Gray Mirror, so we look at the positive and negative impacts of technology on society. And please, if you have any feedback, reach out on Twitter. And if you like the show, give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast app. Uh, we really do appreciate it. Thanks. So today I have a super interesting chat with Anand Girardas about his new book, Winners Take All. And it's a book about how elites are keeping their power and, and, and the ways and mechanisms in which they do so. And it's a very hip book these days because lots of society is based around this now. You have lots of income inequality, you have tax policies in America pushed by Elizabeth Warren and AOC to kind of counteract this. You have, you know, a billionaire like Howard Schultz running for president. You have lots of billionaire pushback at Davos. So it's a, it's a very apropos book for the moment right now. And Anand and I chat about a variety of different things, the mindset towards philanthropy versus taxes, billionaires more generally, solutionism versus just exposing the problem, effective altruism, and, you know, this balance between thinking locally and globally. And we also chat about tech escapism as manifest through something like cryptocurrency. So, but I want to highlight kind of four, so, so listen to the episode if you want to hear all those things, but I want to just highlight four big pieces now for a little bit more in-depthness at the beginning. So the first is Anand does a really great job of of saying hey our current system is not objectively true it's just one of many possible worlds so right now we have a certain value capture system that made it the case that mark zuckerberg owns 25 percent of facebook and you know and is worth you know 60 billion dollars that is not objectively true that does not have to be the way things are instead that is the result of our you know the shareholder equity system applied to this world of of the internet and aggregation theory and and things like google and amazon and facebook and the silicon valley mindset of black swans and a thousand x returns and founder worship and so because of that someone like mark zuckerberg is worth 50 billion instead of 50 million but it didn't have to be true you can imagine a world in which he only made $50 million, in which the value capture mechanisms that we have in society are distributed in a different way. So that's a very helpful mindset to say, to say, these days, our current value capture mindset is just one of many possible worlds, and we can escape it and exit it to a different world that has a different value capture mindset that might not allow for billionaires to exist or might have uh, different kind of mechanisms in place. So that's that's one mindset to think about that I think is super crucial. The second thing is that although Anand and I agree on a variety of things, I think we disagree on what to do next. So in this question of individual responsibility. So after you read Anand's book and, and if you take it as true, which I generally do, what should we do about it? Um, what should an individual do? How can you make billionaires get taxed more and and i think anand says hey you should engage within your political process and you know try to try to influence that process and for me uh, just with my personal experience with that and, and seeing it as it is it's like I'm, I'm worried about um matching my circle of influence to my circle of concern in the sense that for me I've, I've felt that engaging in the political process can be kind of sad um and i really love just the idea of taking individual responsibility for one's actions and so for me this means like a self-tax system where you give money to charity even if you're not a billionaire even if you're someone like me who makes seventy thousand a year to give 20 percent of that to charity or whatever so i think that this is a difference um between us and and one that you should ask yourself is if you take this as true and if you want there to be no more billionaires in the world or you want them to give more of their money away or for it to be taxed more how should you make that happen 
Should it be through political processes or through kind of individual responsibility-based norms processes? So that's the second point. The third point here is uh, kind of another distinction here, which is this difference between taxes and charities but they're both ways to support the public good. And I think that, um, you know, Anand and I chat a lot about, you know, the, the, the pros and cons of each. And, and, and you can think of them as taxes are something that's decided by the government, both the percentage that you're taxed and where it goes. And it's enforced. The enforcement mechanism is law. That's different than something like giving, where it is decided the amount that you give and where you give it is decided by individuals and it's enforced by norms. And so think about the, the, the pros and cons of, of the government-based taxing and the um, self-based you know giving and tithing system as you listen. And finally, the fourth piece here is you know, one of uh, Anand's highlights uh, in the episode and also in the book and one of his main theses is that <laughs> you have people doing bad things with on one hand and then paying it off with the other. Uh, so uh, actually a great example of this is within the effective altruist community, this example of earning to give where you go and work in the oil fields or, you know, at a financial institution and and then you make lots of money and then you give it to these super effective charities and then the claims that you still had a very positive impact on the world. And that kind of feels intuitively kind of gross, but it has relatively fine consequentialist backing. <laughs> and so the macro question for you to ask yourself is, how much should we be able to pay off our sins? And, and, and another way to say this is, should we, if we assume that there's going to be, that we exist in late stage capitalism, in this market world, in, in, this, in our current system as it is, should we try to change that system? Um, or should we allow that system to exist to some extent and then create a parallel process to pay off its externalities and to redistribute wealth? So that's a big question here is how much should we and should our processes be allowed to um, purely optimize for one thing and then pay it off with the other hand? Or how much should we make the process itself one's, one that has the ends and the means kind of baked into one? So uh, with that, I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Anand uh, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>
in large, large parts of this country. It is a punishing, has been a punishing time to be a working middle class person um, in this country and frankly, many other countries. And so uh, I, I, bega- I began the, the reporting journey with curiosity about what the relationship is between all these rich people, elites, uh, saying that they're making the world a better place, changing the world, um, and doing all of that, doing well by doing good, and why it is that, that that sits uneasily next to the reality of a cruel winners-take-all economy and society. And what I found at the end of a reporting journey, embedding myself in that world, I went on a cruise ship with 3,000 entrepreneurs <laughs> so that you didn't have to. Uh, I... I spent time with people in the philanthropy worlds, tech worlds, and, and, and other, other of these worlds. And what I found uh, was, I think, something very disturbing. Not just that all this elite helpfulness is inadequate, which I think we would all generally agree, that it's not moving the needle fast enough against the mm-hmm. big shared problems we have, but that actually, in many cases, um, elite generosity is part and parcel of upholding a flawed system that is causing those problems on a much bigger scale than elites could ever help through private generosity. In other words, that that the kind of making a difference that we see is the wingman of making a killing. And the kind of giving back that we see is the wingman of continued and frankly unjust levels of taking. Um, and I started, to, I came to the conclusion after reporting this book that the whole rhetoric and practice of changing the world when, when pursued by plutocrats in a society that is increasingly a plutocracy mm-hmm. is um, has the appearance of a kind of progressive um, egalitarian glow, but is in fact a form of conservative elite self-defense. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I think that's beautiful. I think, I think, I think it is very... I mean, it just rings so true, and I, and I think you state it in a very good way, and, and, and the book goes into a lot of detail on it. And I think that you're correct also to think of it from a from a systems perspective, to say that the system perpetuates itself, um, and, and, and that the, something that we talk about a lot on this podcast is the idea of, of paradigms and systems and how you have, if you want to change a system, um, you can't just, you can change like some smaller parts of the system, like specific laws or specific incentives or whatever, but you can also go to the kind of the system level or the paradigm level and say, hey, let's actually think about this from a paradigm perspective. And if we change the paradigm, then that paradigm can actually change the norms or the incentives or the laws or whatever. So do you kind of agree that what we're, and you call it like the market world, this this plutocracy that we live in. Um, do you think that, would you agree that it's like, you see it as this like massive kind of big paradigm and then everything in the world is kind of manifest as a version of it? And if so, what, like, how is it manifest? What does that look like? Yeah, I mean, I, I, maybe one way to end to that is, I, you know, I start the book with a couple of quotes and the first one is from Tolstoy. And, and the line is, I sit on a man's back choking him and making him carry me and yet assure myself and others that I am sorry for him and wish to lighten his load by all means possible, except by getting off his back. And I think the position of many of the winners of our age, an age of transformative innovation, of, of extraordinary growth, of immense prosperity, um, many of the winners of our age find themselves in the lamentable position um, that Tolstoy describes because of the system that you described. Um, 
they are standing, they, they, they have won their victories. They have the billions they do. They run the companies they do. They live in the places they do. Not just because they're geniuses, but because of certain social arrangements that have allowed them to win and others not. Right? If opportunity was perfectly evenly distributed, Silicon Valley would you know, be a lot less white, be a lot mm-hmm. less male. Um, you know, and, and so it's, it's hard to avoid the conclusion that the system we have, which frankly has allowed 82% of new wealth created in 2017 to be cornered by the global top 1%, that's allowed the top 1% in the United States to double their share of the nation's income since the middle of the 20th century, that those kinds of system rigging changes have made it great to be in a loop, great to live in the Hamptons or Marin or Westchester or, um, or Evanston, um, but have made it harder to be, you know, anybody else. And the, the elites that I'm talking about are not, are usually not bad people. They mm-hmm. want to help. They want to do something. They want to, they, they, they see what I'm saying and they want to respond. But what they're unwilling to do is concede the system itself. They're unwilling mm. to concede the tax system that advantages investment income over regular laboring income. They're unwilling to concede a system that lets you have better public schools if you live in Greenwich, Connecticut in a big house than if you live in the south side of Chicago in a cramped apartment. They're unwilling to concede the kind of changes that would make maternity leave a right and cost them billions and billions of dollars in government taxation. They're unwilling to, to, to have the kinds of changes that would give Americans health care without having to think about health care every day, um, but would, again, cost them lots of money. But what they're interested in doing is, is, is continuing to stay on our backs and instead of saying nothing, doing nothing, throwing down small scraps of pseudo change that create the feeling that at least they're trying to help. Yep. Yeah, I think, well, I think that's interesting. And I, and I agree at a high level, which is that they, they hear what you're talking about. They say, oh, man, you know, I, I agree with you. And, um, and, I, and I see some of these things as issues, but then kind of from the macro perspective, um, they're unwilling to kind of um, take the actions, like the daily actions, the daily mindset changes to, to, to remove some of the power from themselves or to, to, yeah, to, to distribute or redistribute that power. Do you think, so what would you, I mean, if you think about, so for someone like me, um, and there's kind of some awkwardness here where like I work at MIT and I, I watched a, a clip where you were at talking at Google, um, I am clearly, very clearly part of the elite from the upper class in America, white, straight male. Um, how should I, or, or let me give you an example. For me personally, what I do is I like tax myself, self-tax myself. I tithe myself 20% of my income and give it back to various things. <laughs> and that's not very much, but that's me trying to, to, to take your book to heart and to say, hey, I'm trying to do something about this. I'm trying to say, me as an elite, I don't need any more. I clearly have enough. I want to start to give back. Is that a good attempt? Or what, what kinds of things would you like to see from people, um, from the elites of the world say, hey, they actually are moving the needle at this macro systemic level? Well, first of all, you know, I think uh, people, you know, regular people doing, being generous is is great. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a, an opponent of that. What I, you know, Martin Luther King said so well that, that philanthropy itself is commendable, but we can't look overlook the circumstances of economic injustice that make it necessary. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's not that 
individual acts of giving are problematic, although some individual acts of giving are problematic <laughs> because they actually obscure things that, you know, cause much greater harm. But, but in general, yeah, it's, it's, it's good to give. But I think a lot of giving when pursued by plutocrats on a very big scale, and I'm talking about, you know, $3 billion to implement my vision of public education or $4 billion to do this or that. A lot of that kind of giving, um, something a little more complicated is going on than we often realize. And yes, there's a genuine and noble effort to help. However, there's a couple other things that often happen and, and, and I'll highlight three in particular. One you know, the, the thing people often ask me is like, well, what could be wrong with trying to do good? And the answer is when that good abets harm on a greater scale than the good that it's doing, right? So, so here's a couple ways that 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 kind of giving giving back can abet harm. Um, there's a kind of erasure where a relatively modest amount of giving um, can actually kind of scrub your name, scrub your reputation, mm-hmm. and create space for you to keep doing harm or for harm you did in the past to sort of not rise to it, the attention of journalists and regulators. A very simple example of that, you know, in, in your part of the world and mine and elsewhere is the Sackler family, mm-hmm. the family behind the opioid crisis, a crisis that has killed 200,000 plus people. Those are, you know, genocide numbers of deaths, ravaged communities. I've been to those communities. They, you can, they, they look like, physically ill communities I and mean, the whole place has been ravaged in many cases by this scourge. And you have a family that developed that drug, made billions of dollars pushing that drug, pushed it aggressively in the face of evidence that it was hurting people mm-hmm. and faced some criminal investigations around it, pled out to some, none of this is in dispute. They admitted that they, fraudulently marketed the thing, minimized risks, thousands and hundreds of thousands of people died um, as a result of them and, and other and other related drugs. But they were really the primary instigators. And what were they doing all the while? Philanthropy. They were giving money back. Harvard Sackler Museum, right? Um, you got Sackler galleries in the Smithsonian. You got Sackler at the Guggenheim. You got Sackler here, there, and everywhere. Sackler, Sackler, Sackler. And what it did was it bought off the intelligentsia for years and years and years. People knew the Sacklers were sort of this art-related family, and no one really associated them with creating the opioid crisis, even though all the evidence was there, even though the Department of Justice complaint was available on the web. So that's, that's one way in which giving might actually leave us all worse off, because I think we might actually have been in a better place if they'd never given that arts money. Yeah, we would have had a little fewer, fewer, fewer paintings, but I think we may have saved thousands of lives if journalists and regulators and political leaders had, you know, had less been less kind of d- distracted and gone after them sooner. I think another example that's Mark Zuckerberg. By the way, I think if Mark Zuckerberg had no moral glow as a change agent and guy giving all his money away and whatever, who knows how much he's actually even given so far? If he didn't have that glow. If he was just seen the way any, you know, a chemical magnate is seen or a shipping magnate is seen, you think people would have let him get away with what they let him, let him get away with? You realize like Martha Stewart went to jail for what? Like <laughs> stock at a party? I and mean, like, I'm not excusing insider trading, 
but the idea that Martha Stewart went to jail, jail, that hard time, and Mark Zuckerberg, who's been seriously accused by very serious people of possibly altering a federal election result, and at the very least valuing his own right to be left alone over what was a, an act of foreign cyber war. Mm-hmm. That guy's roaming around, you know, telling everybody about changing the world. You know, mm-hmm. so, so that's another way in which this kind of change can kind of leave us all worse off because actually it obscures what people do. Then there's the fact that this kind of change making, even if you're a good guy who doesn't do that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. if you're spending $3 billion transforming our schools, who are you to transform our schools? Mm-hmm. There's a there's a there's a, a, a second objection that's just the objection from democracy. Mm-hmm. Why 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 did people die in this country to ensure one person one vote? If we create this other door to the nightclub of democracy, where only billionaires can walk in and they each get a million votes, mm-hmm. what what's the whole point of enforcing voting rights if there's just this other way for some people to to like d- dictate public policy? Um, which is what you're doing when you're pushing something like common core philanthropically, or you're, mm-hmm. or you're pushing, you know, for your vision of charter schools instead of, instead of better public schools. Mm-hmm. Um, and then finally, and there's a lot of interesting academic work, Horvath and Powell at Stanford are, are two leaders on this. There's a work that shows that what rich people do when they enter the arena of social change is they change the conversations we all have about change. You take New York City. New York City spends billions of dollars on public education. There's actually not a lot of rich people who can compete with New York City for spending as much on kids' education as New York City does, right? Government is still very, very, very powerful, right? What rich people can do, not for $10 billion, but like for $10 million in a city the scale of New York, is change the conversation about change, right? You can fund reports. You can fund thinkers. You can, you know put your thumb on the scale so that things like charter schools, which are not really changing the system in any way, acquire a moral glow and have more backing and, and have people fighting for them. And, and things like funding public schools more equally, which would threaten your interests, kind of get a little marginalized. Um, so those are some of the problems where, you know, what may seem like perfectly noble acts that I think many of your listeners would say, at least someone's trying. And many of the press mm-hmm. are often like, well, at least they're making a difference. It's not always that simple. Automatic gratitude, as Rob Reich, the Stanford political scientist, says, automatic gratitude is a very poor response uh, mm-hmm. to elite giving. G- gratitude should be one of the responses. But like any other exertion of power, scrutiny and wariness should come first. Yep, yep. I love I love uh, automatic thinking of it not as, hey, if giving happens, you should chill on your gratitude for a second. Say, hey, should we actually be grateful for this? Um, how does it change the system as a whole? What's the actual impact of the giving, etc.? It also sounds like, as as you're t- you're talking about this, it sounds like someone like me um, who makes you know seventy k a year or whatever pre tax and then and then gives some of that to to um, charities and then some of it obviously goes to the government. Um, that you might not have a massive issue with me. I'm, I'm clearly playing into the educational industrial complex here with Harvard and MIT and whatever. But correct me if I'm wrong, but is your main issue, and, and you talk about in this book, this idea of compartmentalization where you say, hey, people who are part of these companies who do all of their, make all their money, do all their 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 capitalist stuff, and then afterwards they become a philanthropist, kind of having a stage one and then a stage two there. It sounds like some of your issue here is like, maybe not someone like me, but someone who, the people who once you get above, you know, a million dollars, $10 million, $100 million up to the billionaires, those are the people who are really shaping the world here. How would you want to change thinking about how um, 
whether it's the equity, like someone like Bezos or, or Zuckerberg, it's, it, it's the equity structure and kind of the venture capital structure to try to get these black swan thousand X hour returns, which makes these people into billionaires. Correct me if I'm wrong, but do you want to change that system and make them not billionaires from the start kind of to kind of, you know, um, stop it before, before they get to that point? Yeah. I mean, I, I think one of the conversations we need to have as a country that we're actually starting to have for the first time in my lifetime is our billionaires a thing we should have? Yeah, yeah. Our billionaires a thing. My we instinct should have. is no. <laughs> right, and, and, and but that question has been unaskable in American life until recently. I mean, I, I've been on book tour, you know, on and off since September, and I will tell you, there's a difference between September mm-hmm. and February. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, there were more gasps and fewer applauses when I said that in September. <laughs> And, and then you had a wave election. You had people like AOC and Elizabeth Warren and, and others talking about these things in new ways. Um, you have this new tax proposals on the horizon. You really have a new conversation that is starting to happen about, hold on, why do we have billionaires? What are billionaires telling us about ourselves? And in many ways, billionaires are warts on a flawed system. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, they're not we sometimes kind of personalize these things. It's, this is not about the individual moral failing of rich people, right? This is about the the fact that like, for example, we have way more billionaires per capita than Germany, Mm -hmm. right? That is revealing. It tells you stuff about what's going on, right? Just the same way outward topical things in your body tell you about what's going on with your hormones and your deep systems. The fact that we have so many more billionaires per capita than, say, Germany tells you about our taxation system and the fact that we hugely give advantages to people who make their money on money instead of people who make their money from work. Right? Mm-hmm. It tells you something about healthcare. The fact that life, it's a lot easier to prosper when you're not worried about whether your kid breaking their arm is, is kind of the end of fiscal solvency for your family. Um, you know, uh, it tells you that, you know, in America, we make, we've made a choice to give people benefits if they work 30 hours a week in a certain place and not 29. Well, in Germany, they don't make the 29 versus 30 distinction and they get a bunch of different outcomes for that. And it probably helps, you know, there be fewer billionaires because people are spending more in companies to take care of people. Um, and so I think the conversation about whether we should have billionaires is really a conversation about what are the kind of policies that allow some people to corner such a large share of the nation's common wealth? Um, because it's not automatic and it's not a force of nature. You know, when you think about, you know, there being someone who makes, you know, let's say $5 billion in the car industry. Well, there's people who made the parts of those cars. There's people who manufactured the cars themselves, put it together, assembled them. There's people who sold them. There's people who drove them around. There's people who work in the gasoline industry. There's all kinds of people, right? That money could have ended up distributed in any number of ways. Yeah. The fact that it all ends up in the hands of people who just are the like investors, that's a very particular outcome that is not a natural outcome that, that that could have gone so many different ways and it goes the way it did just because of how we happen to organize our policies and that's a very empowering notion because we can just organize our policies differently and we will get different outcomes 
Yep. Yep. So, I mean, this is something, I mean, I want to push you on this for a bit, bit and ask, so what kinds of policies or, or laws or regulation would you want to see for something like that? Is it something like the B Corporation, a step in the right direction? Is it is it the marginal tax rate or, or what, what's kind of the, 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 the bucket of, of the set of things that you'd like to see implemented? Look, I, um, you know, in the book itself, I was wary of, of, being a solutionist, because, yeah, 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 you know, because I don't. <laughs> That's want why I'm pushing you on it. <laughs> yeah, because you know, because I think there's a lot of smart people working on it, and, and I'll tell yeah. you, my, I mean, I'll, I'll answer your question in a second, but I, w- I will say first that my theory of of change here is that the reason we haven't been able to implement the kinds of solutions I'm talking about is because of the prevalence and dominance of some very well-heeled bullshit Mm -hmm. and not because there weren't people in Washington for the last 20 years who had an idea for how to raise taxes on rich people. I assure you those people have been around. Mm -hmm. None of us have been paying attention to them. I assure you people who actually wanted single payer healthcare have been around and banging the same drum for a long time. Look no further than Bernie Sanders. Um, But people weren't listening until, you know, to him, I guess, in 2016. Um, look at people who've been talking about actually empowering women through social policy instead of telling them to basically raise their own hand in a meeting, which is the lean-in approach, um, which is trying to convince women that you know patriarchy is a posture problem. Um, those ideas have been around for a long time. People weren't listening to them. And so my theory of change here is my job was to slay the bullshit with this book. I felt that if I could tear down a set of powerful ideas that have been used to marginalize those kind of solutions, which are there and have been there, if I could slay the bullshit that got in their way, if I could clear that brush, those ideas would have a much better chance of being implemented and being heard. And so I resisted solutionizing for that reason in the book itself because I, I i and by the way i have seen that happen i mean people i have watched as people you know and it's one of the great joys of my life read the book and see through certain things that i've tried to help them deconstruct and i watch as people you see through that suddenly you think differently about that issue suddenly you recognize that oh when presidential candidates who are really rich shoot down tax policies oh that's not selfless that's like just repping their own interests like it, 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 you help, once you help people see the moves, um, a lot of new possibilities come into view. That said, the kind, I think we are now in this country having real conversations about a couple areas that I think are very important. I think we need to tax rich people way more than we do right now. We hugely undertax them. They're not paying their fair share. The reality is most Americans, or many, many Americans, pay a wealth tax through property taxes in their home, Right. It's just mm-hmm. rich people don't have, you know, adequate property taxes on their billion-dollar fortunes. Um, we need to rectify that. I think we need to think about corporate law in America. Why is it legal to have a corporate charter that forces you to run your company only for shareholder benefit, and therefore, you know, it allows you to put the, your shareholders over the planet, and and makes it legal and maybe even required to run your company as ruthlessly as possible to the to the you know detriment. Of, of the biosphere. Um, you know, why do we have labor laws that have not kept up with an Uber economy, a gig economy, an Amazon work camper economy, 
Um, and how do we reinvent labor protection for the world, the people now? And how do we actually have collective bargaining and unions? Um, those kinds of policies. Um, uh, the way I scoop it all up is a lot of the solutions I'm talking about are the kinds of solutions you have after you have a wave of extraordinary private endeavor, much as we had in the first Gilded Age 100 years ago. People were building railroads, steel, you know, all those kinds of things. And you have great fortunes that are built and, and real problems solved and, and people enriched. But then you have a bunch of residual problems. You have coordination problems. You have problems of the concentration of ownership. You have problems of, you know, some of those people with big fortunes trying to asphyxiate competition. And it requires a kind of wave of public investment and public action to bring that kind of private striving um, and those thousand blooming flowers to bring them into some kind of order. Um, and I think we're at another such moment like that today. Yep. Yeah, I agree. I think, and, and I agree with you, with your, with your instinct, with the book to say, Hey, you're going to, in the book, you know, not focus on solutionizing, focus on the seeing clearly piece before the responding wisely piece, focus on the sense-making aspect to say, hey, this is really what's happening. And then as you say, if you get people, it reminds me of the paradigm stuff we were talking about earlier where you say, hey, everybody, remember, this is the paradigm that we live in. And there's all these manifestations of it, whether it's through norms or law or incentives or whatever. And then, and as you say, you just need to get a lot of people to see the world more clearly and to have our sense making better. And then we can start to to actually work on some of those problems. So I think I generally agree with that mindset and, and like some of your, your proposed solutions. Do you think that a, a thing that I always wonder about is the balance between having... I mean, so I'm, I come from the cryptocurrency world to some extent, and so I'm kind of influenced by, you know, crypto libertarian and things of that variety. Um, what do you think about the balance between, like for me personally, you know, I make $70,000 a year, 25% of it goes to taxes to the government, um, and then 15% or 20% post-tax I give to charity. Do you think that there is a, how do you think about this, like people taking individual responsibility for, for giving and giving to the public good versus how much, you know, how many taxes? there should be how do you think about this balance between people taking the responsibility on themselves to do it and then versus the government saying hey i want to come in and like take a certain percentage how do you think about the balance between those two things well look i'm not telling anybody to to not give and help people that's not my message yeah. by any means and, and my book's not aimed at people making seventy thousand dollars a year abusing, <laughs> abusing their power and, and <laughs> destroying the american dream you know, so, so you're, you're you're gonna be okay um, <laughs> you know, I think what, what I would think about yeah. is when you have people doing the same pattern you described, but at a, but at the level of, you know, running an investment bank and, um, you know, often the compromises become much starker. They're recommending mm -hmm. Exxon mobile stock. That's how they're making their money. Then they're with some of that extra money they have they're giving back to fight climate change. Mm -hmm. That feels like a problem to me. Right? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of that that is going on. Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. said, for folks like you or others who are giving, I think there are ways to give that are self-preservational and shore up a bad system. And there's other ways to give, better ways to give, that actually serve to break down a bad system, right? So, mm -hmm. so let's take a couple examples. On education, the most common thing that rich people love to give to is charter schools. Mm -hmm. They love them some charter schools. Why? Because it's a way of helping, helping some poor kids you can see and touch in front of you. You know you're doing something. You know you're having impact. 
put your name on it maybe, go to the meeting once a year, tell your friends at the cocktail party you helped some minority kids get into Yale, as one of the characters mm-hmm. in my book says. And at the same time, you don't need to challenge the larger system of class segregation that we have in our public schools in this country, where it is illegal to basically give children schools based on how nice their parents' homes are. Right? Mm-hmm. It gives you a way to change something without having to change anything fundamental. Um, so if you were interested in that issue of educational equity, for example, I would urge anybody listening to this to say, okay, instead of giving money to that one charter school, I'm going to fight to end this system. Well, how do you do that? Well, there's a bunch of lawyers. The New York Times wrote a great story about it last year. A bunch of lawyers who are you know, slowly farming cases in the hope of eventually getting a Supreme Court case that would make it unconstitutional to fund schools by local property taxes and therefore differentially according to the wealth of the area. right? And those lawyers, I assure you, have a lot less plutocratic backing than, you know, fancy little charter schools. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of cause where you'd be you'd be giving. Yes, you could support those lawyers. Um, but what you'd be doing, you'd be supporting their effort to make our system work better, mm-hmm. right? to win a right for everybody. If they won that case, if they won a Brown versus Board of Education, but for class, which, by the way, has enormous racial correlates, mm-hmm. um, that would affect everybody in the United States overnight. Mm-hmm. right? Those lawyers could make it unlawful for any child in any public school in America to be have less educational funding than any other. Yep. Right? So there's no philanthropy, there's no private giving that could ever achieve anything on a scale matching that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Those are the kinds of causes that often get underrepresented in our age, but that I think deserve more attention. Yeah, I, th- I I I agree with you to to work at kind of the systemic level and to say, hey, instead of just you know working at more of the symptom level and saying, oh, let's just fund these things at all. A, it'll be good for signaling at the cocktail party, and B, um, it's perpetuating the existing system. Instead, try to work at the systemic level. I agree with that. Do you think? And this to me leads naturally into this this question about in your book you have this this great piece about the Clinton Global Initiative and and the globalists more generally and their their one world moral glow where they're trying to help the world all together. Um, and, 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 you know, treating all humans the same. And I think that there's, and you also talk about some of the backlash there where people, when they start thinking from this global elite perspective, they start saying no to the people who are in their countries or whatever. Um, for me personally, I'm, I'm, I would categorize myself as kind of an effective altruist. So someone who thinks about doing the most good, treating all humans the same. How do you think about something like effective altruism? So for example, of my, the money that I gave each month, you know, 120 bucks goes to, through Give Directly, which is this program directly to folks in rural, um, Uganda for a a basic income. How do you think about the kind of the globalist perspective and the effective altruist perspective versus kind of um, this more, more like close to home perspective? Do you, would you push back on something like effective altruism? Um, Well, you know, a couple things. One, you know, there was a part of effective altruism, which, you know, which very much flew, flowed out of their ideas, which they've now backed away from, which is earning to give. (laughs) Um, which is kind of like make as much money as you can in whatever way you can, including at a hedge fund or whatever, so that you can maximize how much you give away. And, you know, frankly, it was an idea that had every, every benefit except being right. You know, (laughs) and it's almost exactly what you're talking about, you know, like the, on one hand doing this and on the other hand, simple accounting error. If you actually understand what it takes to make that much money, you're often causing 
deprivation on a scale that is, you know, going to exceed the charitable contribution. So even by their own utilitarian calculus, it was not a good mm-hmm. bet, not a good mm-hmm. deal. Um, that said, let me say something about, you know, your kind of global, the global aspect of that question, which I think is really important. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, I think it is terrific that our very provincial country, the United States of America, has become way less provincial in our lifetime. That's a major shift in American life. I mean, that's just true mm-hmm. of food. I mean, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. It was like a Chinese restaurant when I was growing up. That was mm-hmm. food diversity. And now you can eat cuisines from all around the world in a place like Cleveland the way you can in you know, every major American city. And that's a shift that kind of captures a larger shift where we're a more global country, we're more globally aware, we're, we're less siloed. And that's great. And a big piece of that in terms of giving and caring for the world is that, yeah, a lot of American, bright American young people, people at MIT and Harvard, et cetera, now go to Africa and do projects and go to India and do projects and go to China. And, do, and that's great. And in some ways, people now see their own humanity as not being different from the humanity of people in other countries. And and they don't just believe in helping people near them. They believe in you know helping people far away and a life is a life is a life. And that is great. However, I think there's a downside to that that sometimes has not been acknowledged. Um, and the downside is that it's there seems to be something important that gets missed about making sure your own community, your home community, the place you belong, is healthy and flourishing first. Sort of like putting on the oxygen mask yourself first before before helping someone else. Um, And the reality is, to take one simple example that I write about in the book, if I look at my own social networks and when I was you know, living, living in, in Cambridge some years ago and seeing people at Harvard and MIT in those worlds wanting to do something for the world. I saw many more people, um, Americans going to do something in Kenya than showed any interest in Kentucky, for example. Now on the surface, again, you think that's great. We're enlarging our horizons. We're thinking globally. Fast forward a few years and now Donald Trump is president. And you say, you know, part of me wonders if more of the best and brightest Americans and more American institutions and more um, journalists had been really focusing on what was happening in Kentucky, and I've used Kentucky broadly and metaphorically, um, I think we'd be living possibly in a very different world, a less angry country. And a less angry country might not have elected Donald Trump. And if you didn't have Donald Trump as president, I think Kenya would be better off too. Because the Trump presidency has threatened the entire world order and stability and trade and everything, security, everything, right? And so there's a way in which the neglect of one's backyard in the name of some kind of globalism sometimes means that that communities become unhealthy in ways that, that spread problems um, that you wouldn't have if you were tending to your own your own place. You know, I think it's amazing that London has become this amazing global capital, and people from everywhere, and people going, and all these international development people who live in London and are constantly on planes helping some other country. But you know what? A lot of people in London had no idea what was going on in the rest of their country. No idea. Yeah. They didn't know those people, right? So they were on a plane to, to Sierra Leone more often than they were in North England. 
<laughs> and what that's now done is hurt both North England and Sierra Leone because now Sierra Leone's got to live in a world where Brexit's going to happen, right? And where the post-war European order is fracturing. And again, that's not good for anybody. So I, I, I think there's a case to be made for making sure your own community is, is sound um, and then worrying about the world on top of that because the world often suffers um, when you have unsound communities. I'll give you one final example of that. We think of climate change as a problem of global cooperation, mm-hmm. Well, who's the biggest, most significant resistor to ad- working together on climate change, I mean, to advancing? The United States. The United States, States yeah. <laughs> now, if you look at how that issue polls in America, it polls almost entirely along the lines of education. Mm-hmm. People with a college degree and more generally do not have a climate denial problem. There's some do, but we don't have a climate denial issue among that cohort. Mm-hmm. People without a college degree... You know, we, we do have a big climate denial problem. So now think about climate for a second. Is that a problem of global cooperation or is that actually an emanation of domestic politics? If we made it easier to go to college in this country, if we had free college or, or a more affordable college, if we actually made that a priority, we treated college the way we treated high school as a right, it would seem to me we would have a very different, you know, Climate change would become like a 70-30 issue. Climate change is a 70-30 issue. The world's politics around climate change would be very different. And our chances of solving it as a world would be very different. That is an example of how looking for the kind of sphere of global cooperation as the place to solve things is often misplaced. First, take care of your home. If we simply did right by our citizens at home in basic domestic policy, um, this kind of existential climate issue in the world would suddenly become way, way easier. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of I think there's a lot of truth to what you're saying, which is, yes, there's there's power in 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 uh, yeah, we're less provincial than we are. We there's also lots of power in the cost effectiveness of these things that can happen between people who are in extreme poverty in other parts of the world versus people in more developed countries like um, the United States. And at the same time, we need to think about. And I super agree with, I mean, starting with yourself first, whenever, whether it's, you know, with your community and also just as an individual, just being like, hey, where am I at in the world right now? You know, can I, um, allowing yourself to be a little bit, I would, I don't want to call it selfish, but saying, where am I at? Making sure you have good self-care for yourself and then starting to move outward from that out into these circles of concern and circles of influence and saying, hey, um, how can I start to impact my community positively? So I, 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 I understand that, that pushback. Um, one, one final question I have here before we start to get to wrap up mode is, so we've talked a little bit about this awkwardness between, you know, you know, you were, you've given, you're kind of influencing, influence, influencing the influential in the sense that you're talking with important people and you're saying, hey, people, um, you're being kind of bad here. And like this, you're perpetuating a, a negative system. Um, and there was a really funny example of this at Harvard. Do you want to just tell us um, this, this recent award that you got and, and the headline for it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was, I was incredibly honored um, to find out recently that I got um, this award from the humanist chaplaincy at Harvard. Um, and it's a, it's a lifetime achievement award for contributions to, to, um, to humanism and, and kind of humanist values. Um, and it was, it was, it was very moving to me. My, my mother's question as a good Indian mother was of course, come on, what have you, what have you done with an, for a lifetime achievement award? Um, but that, but that was, that was kind of great. And, um, but the best part of the whole thing was seeing the, the, the headline that Boing Boing uh, made of it, which was Harvard Humanists 
troll the elites who fund the Harvard Endowment by awarding Anand Gerdardas a prize. Um, so I thought that was, I thought that was great, and I'm very happy to be part of uh, part of that act of trolling. <laughs> it's good, I think. And as you say, I mean, it is. It's funny in the sense that a, it, it, I mean, congratulations on the award. And it's good to receive these things from people in power. And at the same time, as you say, you have all of the. You have this. Harvard has a massive endowment, and they have so much money. And then, and those people funded this. Um, they're they're funding this prize, and then that prize goes to someone like you who says, "Hey, I'm pretty sure all these people who funded this prize should not that they're part of a system that should not exist, and that we should try to take down." So I would be interested to know. I mean, oh, I'm, not see, getting, I'm not getting any money. No one's funding a prize. It's just oh, got it, got it, got it, got it, got it. Got it. Okay, sweet, 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 sweet. Um, but yeah, I will be interested to know how much. Um, like if you know what those people would think about, um, you know, fun or about giving this prize to someone like you. I think that's interesting. So I guess as a final question here, um, so I come, we also, uh, within the media lab at MIT, I'm also part of this digital currency initiative and we're kind of, we're building money in, in a weird way from the ground up with the, you know, Bitcoin and, and yeah. Ethereum and all these technologies. And you have, there's a, there are issues. I mean, there are all kinds of issues. It's also, it's very exciting, but one of the issues is, is income inequality and, and thinking about, um, you know, the income inequality and the Gini coefficients of Bitcoin and Ethereum, they're, they're awful, you know, and it's like, you know, 30% of the top, um, 30% of all the Bitcoins are owned by the top 100 addresses. Um, and so how should the people in the Bitcoin and cryptocurrency community be thinking about income inequality and thinking about as they build these new financial systems, how to align them with something like a winner's take all uh, to, to something like the, the book uh, that, that you're pushing here? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great question. Like, I would just step back and mm -hmm. say, I'm often fascinated by the priorities of people with technical prowess in our time. Mm. It almost seems to me to be something kind of deeply psychological in the escapism yeah. of the kind of social escapism of many with those, with those tools. I mean, for example, the fascination with space mm -hmm. that many people in Silicon Valley have feels to me a kind of classic psychological diversion from the very real problems we have down here on earth. Right. We, you can say you're going to create a, you know, an escape hatch for humanity, but the reality is like, we have some real problems down here on earth and a Mars colony. I'm not sure it's the, it's the biggest priority, but it fascinates these folks. You know, you have in the, in the currency stuff you're talking about, yep. you know, yeah, it's, it, I'm sure some of this stuff has some potential to empower people. And I'm sure people love to tell that empowerment story, yep. but the reality is we have not been short on innovation in our era. We have lived in an era awash in innovation. Innovation being the Latin word for new shit. There's plenty of new shit in our time. No who, who's gonna claim that this has been an age of you know short on new shit? What this has been an age short on is progress. If progress is defined as most people's lives getting better. So the issues that bedevil us are not the new things. How do we get a new currency? This and that. I mean all of that's fine. But we have deep political problems of the exclusion of many, of systems that don't work for people. And if you don't actually work on those systems, whatever you invent, whether it's Bitcoin or crypto bit or bitto crypt or whatever, <laughs> is simply going to sit on top of and accentuate the existing divides. Mm -hmm. And so I wish some of the people who are really amazing at thinking about how you can have servers do make work to generate money that's not real. Mm -hmm. I wish some of those people were actually smarter about thinking about 
how you rewrite the social contract, how you actually give workers power so they're not, you know, eating at the dollar store every day is one couple that I wrote about. You know, how, how do you actually solve the real problems we have so that most people's lives get better instead of these kind of, you know, um, projects that often feel more like self-pleasure, pleasuring than kind of yep. social progress. Yep. Yep. I think, I think that's a good point. I think that, um, so for anybody who's listening, who's in the, the cryptocurrency world, yeah, to really, to really evaluate whether you think something like Bitcoin or crypt- other cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology, will it actually be helpful for things? Or is it just you following your own love of technical abstractions and, and, and complex computer science problems or whatever? Uh, so I, th- I think that's a good, a good place to end here. Um, well, uh, so first off, for the listeners, A, you should check out Anand's book, um, Winners Take All. Just Google it. It's there on the internet. And Anand, how do you, um, h- how can people find you on, on, on Twitter? Um, my Twitter name is Anand Writes, A-N-A-N-D-W-R-I-T-E-S. Um, and uh, I apologize in advance for my active tweeting. It's good. It's active, and honestly, it's I, I, once you read the book and, and once you see Anand's perspective here, you can really. It's one of those things where you can just apply it to. It's kind of like taking a, a gray pill of some variety, where you're like, okay, most things in the world pop that are popping up these days, whether it's Howard Schultz, you know, maybe running for president. It's like everything is aligned with this winner's take all um, uh, thesis that you have. So, so it's a fun. It's a fun follow. Um, so I with that, thank, uh, I want to thank Howard um, for running for president and subjecting himself to ridicule um, simply to, to help make the case for my book. It's, it's an enormous sacrifice um, from a great mediocre American. And I, and I, I just commend him for it. Well, hopefully you can give him uh, some of the proceeds of the book. Um, so that, that'll work. Um, well, again, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much.